special edition of the Real Man Wood Pod. I talked this up last week when I was just doing a, a solo rambling pod, but I was going to get Ted Bell on today, and we do have Ted Bell. And one of the things I talked up was that he does what I would consider a version of citizen journalism. Um, that is a regular person who it's not his professional job to be doing this kind of stuff, but he's actually informing the public in a way in a way that our journalists probably should be doing, but are not doing. So uh, without further ado, let's bring in Ted. Never been on my pod before. I've been on your pod a couple of times. Uh, welcome to The Real Man Wood. Good morning from California. It's very nice to be here. Longtime fan of The Real Man Wood, dating all the way back to East Coast Offense. That was the original title, East Coast Offense. And no one really knows this, but we, we always say a real man would do this, a real man would do that, Dalton and I, like, all the time. And it was actually Derek Van Riper, of all people, in Vegas, I don't know when it was, 2017, 18, one of those years, and he was managing our media for Rotowire at the time. He now is at The Athletic, and he said, you know, you might want to just change it to, like, a real man would because it's more catchy, and you guys say it all the time. And I thought about it, and I was like, yeah, I think he's right. So I never mentioned this. I never... Uh, Gave credit to Derek, but uh, it was it was his. He didn't come up with Real Man Wood, but he came up with the idea to actually make the podcast named Real Man Wood. So for better or worse, that's on him. Probably just got him in trouble or something. But uh, I hope not, because I will say uh, I was lucky enough to have DVR um, allow me to be part of that initial pentathlon and fantasy thing that he did. That was football league that covered the traditional head-to-head. It covered a roto, it covered a survivor, it covered a DFS segment. There were five segments of the fantasy pentathlon, just a wonderful format. And I don't know Derek at all. I just got to play with him in a league for a couple of years, but he seemed like a hell of a guy. And I am so thankful that he rebranded you because Real Man Wood is way better than East Coast Offense. The acronym, it allows, allows your community of users to get together behind that ARMW tag too yeah. so good branding good way for your community to to rally around the, the pod yeah credit where it's due he, he had the idea and i i realized he was right all right so let's just talk about what we're going to talk about which is a little different first uh, i just want to get a little background on you you don't get to have to get so specific but just generally speaking how is it you know to do what you do when i say what you do what i've seen is you dig into actual legal filings you dig into Facts that are not really reported in the media, there's just much higher evidentiary standards. You go to the source material that most people don't have the bandwidth or the, even the wherewithal, even the knowledge to get into. How do you know how to do that? What's your day job? How did this come about? Okay, well, it's actually, it's a lifetime, uh, really, is what you hear on those podcasts is my entire life. And if I get too long-winded here, just steer me back on course so your audience doesn't fall asleep. But I've been into government uh, economics and law for as long as I can remember, dating back to, gosh, preteen. So it was just something that always fascinated me was the idea of politics, of parliamentary procedure, of law, of how courts work. So it's something that I've always been fascinated with. And um, to describe myself, rather than trying to do a resume on a rope and go through my education, my profession, which not really interested in sharing with people widely anyway. Let me talk about my Myers-Briggs. So personality profiling 
is something that I'm a, I, I believe in. I believe that you know there are certain types of personalities that people develop, and I think that Myers Briggs has has done a great job of classifying those. So my thinker feeler score. So Myers Briggs has a, a quadrant, if you will, and they measure: does a person have more emotional inputs, or do they have more thought inputs? And there's no right or wrong. It's just kind of quantifying what is a person's makeup. And my thinker scale is just pinned all the way. Um, I'm almost sociopathic as far as I don't emote much. And um, not as in go out and find a streetwalker and kill her, not that type of sociopath, but I just don't have a ton of raw emotions. I don't base things off of emotion. And, and it's been that way my whole life. So as I got into high school, uh, I was fortunate because not everybody in Boston public schools uh, it has a quality education, unfortunately, but they recognized that I had some type of gift and they moved me into advanced placement classes. And I, I started to, during the summer, my mom was a huge advocate of getting me out of, of some of the stuff that we were doing as adolescents and into some of these summer programs. I did one with Johns Hopkins University, had a gifted summer student program. And that was really where it took off because there's where I started to get actual instruction. And there were people who taught me how public meeting agendas, public meeting minutes, what FOIA, you know, Freedom of Information Act. And from the time that I'm 15 till now I'm in my late 40s. So over the last 30 years, I can't think of a time where I didn't have at least five active FOIAs. So I'm constantly out there acquiring records. So you're doing this and, before, before, I mean, I, the world was always somewhat crazy before it went totally crazy. You were doing this in the eighties. You were doing this in the nineties. Correctly. Correct. Correct. Okay. And um, it's weird, but the tie-in as far as my social scene because you know that's not going to make somebody very socially popular. What are you doing this weekend? Are you going out to the kegger? No. Did you know that Boston City Council passed this thing? I got to look to see what they're doing over there. But the social tie-in was I was really into aggressive music, into public enemy, suicidal tendencies, Megadeth. And at that point in time, there was just an overt political message in all of their music so they were kind of uh, my tutors, if you will, Chuck D, Dave Mustaine, these people who were, you know, they were introducing a vocabulary and places in the world. So I remember the war in Nicaragua. So you can date it there. That was really the first thing that I dove into deeply. And it was because there was a speed metal band by the name of Sacred Reich released a, a record called Surf Nicaragua. And it was a concept album, if you will, that was all about the illegal Contra invasion of, of Managua and how the Iran-Contra scandal really worked. So it was like, okay. So when I was with my metal buddies playing guitar, you know, it, it wasn't socially awkward to say, hey, man, do you know what you know, President Reagan is doing? It was socially acceptable. So and in that weird way, you know, that that was really the point of origin. And I, I went to broadcast school. So when I went to college, what I learned to do is communicate. So in a weird way, I kind of became this weapon, you know, because I have this really well-developed research skill set. 
and I paired it with a comm set so I could get the point across without just kind of droning on and on. Because something like the Russiagate, that's dense material. You know what I mean? There's a lot of angles. There's a lot of nuances. So how do you present that to a wide audience without losing them in the first five minutes? And, you know, let me interrupt you here. Let me interrupt yeah. you here because 2017, 2018, I've been skeptical of what our official pronouncements are. I was skeptical from the beginning that Trump was as horrible as they were all saying. It's, world, it's the end of the world. He's going to start World War III. It seemed very fake to me. I never liked Hillary Clinton. I didn't trust the Democratic Party. So I was already skeptical. But admittedly, in 2017-18, when this Russiagate was on the news 24-7, I was very dubious. But I wasn't like, this is definitely fake, because I thought they couldn't really be going through all this trouble if there wasn't you know something pretty big there and it's just going to be a matter of well how big is it how can they spin it which side's going to win the spin and so that's kind of my mindset and then i listen to your podcast it's now the arch independent and i recommend it for anybody who listens to this podcast it's very well produced a lot better produced based on that communications degree perhaps uh, <laughs> than this podcast but anyway it's 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 a good listen but i i, I listen to that and I made Heather listen to it. I've never made Heather listen to a podcast. I just thought it was really clever, the angle you took, because what you did was you started out with the George Papadopoulos case and what they had on him. And George Papadopoulos, you've probably forgotten about everybody, but he was one of Trump's administration, not a very important post. And he got busted and charged with some crimes. And you actually broke down what it is he did, who it is he was, what the situation was. And when you grasp just on that little tangential, unimportant guy who's not even, you know, again, most people don't remember who George Papadopoulos was. And you saw how preposterous, how absurd what they had on him was. They had nothing. And what they did to him and how they tried to make it into something and how even the judge was like, what, what is this? Start, you started to realize, like, this is all smoke and mirrors. This is all fake. But you had to pick an entry point. You couldn't just go through all of the different players all at once. And I just thought it was just really clever to get you into like, okay, what is the, what did the filing say? What are, what is factually the case? And to get you in on something simple, and then you see what a house of cards the whole thing was. So I, I just that one just opened my eyes, and from that moment forward, I'm like, there's no there there. And then when uh, Mueller announced nothing at the end, I was already expecting it. I I listened right. to your podcast, and I knew that there were people are like, oh, he's going to jail. I can't wait to see what Mueller announces. And of course, I knew at that point from your podcast that it was going to be nothing, and that was right. definitely a minority view. It was, and um, thanks for the kind words about the show. Uh, I was. I was quite literally surprised at the pickup of those de-government X shows. Um, so I kind of, I view myself as a documentarian more than anything for whatever my view of myself might be worth. So I don't really think of myself as a journalist. I'm not trying to be a brand. And I mean that earnestly, like I, I'm not pushing myself or my show out there. I do essentially no promotion for it. Um, it's just, it's something that to be quite honest, it's something that I've done to keep in touch with folks who I've met over the years. Um, I've got, I've been fortunate enough to travel a bit. I've got friends around the world and I'm not into Facebook or, or that type of thing. So I started the show just as a way to kind of do, you know, me and our inner circle. So I've done within the first five podcasts that I ever did, it was, it was me and my closest friends me and my wife, me and my brother, 
those were the hosts just as a way to kind of get our voices out there to folks who I hadn't seen in a couple of years. And it was all really benign stuff. We did shows about dogs, billiards, San Diego, you know, which breweries to hit in San Diego, really, really low brow type stuff like that. But for us and our crew, it was a, it was a great way to stay in touch. But when the Trump thing happened, it was just, it was so all encompassing. And I knew that it was fake. Like I would, I had never felt like, like uh, I'm kind of stammering to put the right words together. I felt like I was on an island. You know, I was like, wait a minute. Are my, are my, my interpretation of what's going on is really so rare that nobody else in the world has paused to think, hey, you know, this whole Trump Russia thing seems just a little dubious. And how would someone like Donald Trump have a back channel to someone like Vladimir Putin? It did. It makes no sense on its face. So it was a conspiracy theory that somehow he had done this and they had the fake steel dossier that was paid for by Clinton administration. They used their contacts in the news media and in, and in the intelligence agents, the FBI to sort of put this out there. And it was literally a conspiracy theory that you're saying, even as a conspiracy theory, it wasn't very good. You felt like the dots didn't connect. Oh, right away. Right. And um, maybe it's, again, because I had so much experience in kind of narrative, false information presentation, um, it, it wasn't very good. So I was like, all right, let me make a couple of minutes to go take a look at what they really have on, on these low-level Trump people. And that's where I got introduced to Kid Pop. And as I dug into it, I was like, whoa, not only is this not legit, there's something else here. Like it, it's so not legit, it's to the point of fraud. And when you dig into Carter Page was was really the linchpin of the whole thing. It was like, wait a minute, this is a, a Naval Academy kid who was who was running ops for the CIA, and now they're they're gonna turn around and dime him because he went to some Russian thing and they need any form of connection to make this whole Russiagate fairy tale try to come to life. And I'm very much a, a don't piss on my leg and tell me it's raining type of guy. Like I don't go into it with the with any type of agenda. Like I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna exonerate Donald Trump because Donald Trump's a shitbag and he, you know, there is no exonerating the type of person that he is. But you can figure out: are there massive institutions, massive media machinery, massive, you know, military defense? Uh, intelligence are there massive operative operations that are trying to wipe out this proverbial outsider and that's really where i started to dig my teeth in and once i found it all i was like oh shit somebody's got to document this and i sat on it for probably two months thinking you know what somebody out there is doing what i'm doing because this isn't hard and i said it on the all of those podcasts i was like i am not a clairvoyant i'm not doing anything that requires any really specialized skill it's about accessing pacer to get to court records it's about going to congress.gov and finding the the hearing transcripts to see who said what and there is some manual labor you know without a doubt but it's almost like managing a fantasy team it's a hobby of mine so, all right, take all this info, sync it to a timeline, and then read the timeline in a vacuum and see, 
okay, how did this happen? And the pieces make a lot more sense when you follow them in cron order. And that's what the podcast tried to do is first, you know, pull the sweater, the old Weezer sweater song. If you want to destroy my sweater, you know, grab that loose thread and yank and see what happens. And when it all came together, it was like, oh shit, man, this whole thing's, you know, it's it's not just a conspiracy theory, it's a hoax. It's a it's a jussy right. smell. They're smelling right. us. <laughs> yeah. They're smelling yeah. us all. And I was like, why is nobody talking about this? Is the is the hatred of the orange man so so intense? What's, what's and, the level beneath a conspiracy theory? Like, like it has it's not even as good as a conspiracy theory is a theory that people are conspiring, planning something that you're not sure is true. But this is beneath a conspiracy theory. It was like a fake thing that they completely orchestrated themselves. I mean, it was it was a level below. And I, I think people don't quite realize that. It's funny you say that you sat on it for two months because you were like, well, someone else is going to come out with this stuff. I mean, this stuff is right there in the record. Like, why doesn't someone come out? And nobody has. And I don't even know to this day that somebody's put it together three years, four years later. And, and I wonder, you know, like our journalists, I mean, I know everyone knows that journalists are phony and they're PR people for the, the powerful, but I mean, come on, dude, does not, does nobody have any ambition to want to break a big story? I mean, to me, Apparently it's like, not. this is, this is the, the one-on-one job of being a journalist. It's so much stuff out there. I mean, Jesus, how about all the Pfizer stuff going on now? I mean, there's so many people, it's all substackers. I mean, all the guys that I read are substackers. And they're doing kind of a version of it. And some of them are very good. They do a version of what you do. I don't know how some of them dive into filings and stuff, but we're just reliant on people like you, on citizen journalists, people who are like, what the fuck is going on? And then taking it upon themselves, some with a lot of skill to unearth stuff. But you're like, where is the professional class of journalists? It's just, it really, I, I know it's obvious in one level, but another level, I'm like a naive person. I'm like, oh, you're a journalist. You went to journalism school. You trained to ask questions of the powerful and expose things. Like, where the fuck are you people? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> I mean, they should yeah, be so are. ashamed right now. It's, just, it's such a shameful profession right now. It, um, I separated in my mind. I don't think uh, of most of the people uh, who work in the quote unquote news business as journalists. I think of journalists as uh, Chris Olson. If there's, if I can use just a name that popped into my head, Chris Olson, KO reporter on Twitter, is a guy who's got a JD. He covers Massachusetts courts for um, a, a Mass Law Weekly, a, a professional trade publication. That guy's a journalist. He knows what he's talking about. He's an expert in the subject matter. He follows you know, a very specialized set of stuff and he reports on them and I can trust everything that's in Mass Law Weekly is the, the name of the publication. That's journalism. Now pivot over to New York Times, that's in my mind media. And that's all about the, you know, the dark side of humanity. That's Noam Chomsky manufacturing consent. That's mass formation psychosis. Their job is not to inform you and I heard your your most recent podcast, and you were right on top of this, I thought, which is these people have no interest in, in broadening you, another human's understanding of the world. They're trying to manipulate an opinion. So when we think about what is their job, it's hard for me to, to get upset because a lot of them, you know, their job isn't to inform you. Their job is to manipulate you, and they've become quite good at it. So in a weird way, um, I respect it. You know what I mean? I, they can't con me because I'm awake, if that makes any sense. And I don't, I don't, it's hard for it not to come off as arrogant or assholey. But 
you know, I've prepared myself my entire life for this type of thing. You're not going to piss on my leg and tell me it's rain. And in fact, I'm going to make, you know, a decent living selling umbrellas to people who don't want to have their legs pissed on, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I, I'm just naive. I hear the word journalist and I think, oh, you know, this is a respectable person doing an important job. And, and that's not what that means anymore. No, you know, it's so. not. So another thing I teased in the last podcast is get into some of the current things going on and just get your take. Um, and I know you're not like on a political team, not rooting for team A or team B, team good. That's correct. You're not, on, you're not on team good, you're not on whatever the opposite of team good is. You're just trying That's to right. get to right, what's going on. So I wanted to try this with, um, I know you and I had exchanged some DMs about this topic um, and I posted on the Twitter and, and so have you. A couple of weeks ago, Victoria Newland, who's like the foreign secretary for politics. I don't know. She's a, a senior administration official. Yes. And she, she was in front of the Senate, I guess, and she's being interviewed by Marco Rubio. He's asking her some questions, and she acknowledges that there are these biolabs, something that I thought, again, was a conspiracy theory that Ukraine had a bunch of uh, bioresearch facilities, and apparently those exist. And she was concerned that these bioresearch facilities would fall into Russian hands. And so my first take was like, wait, what? That's actually real? There's These bioresearch facilities exist? And then I thought, it's not a bunch of science lab frog dissection, high school science lab stuff, because it's to the point where they're worried the Russians could take them over. So there's something serious in these bio research labs. So that's about where I got to and drew the inference. Why are these there? Did we fund them? Are we in control of them? Are they old Soviet era? I've heard different explanations. So I was like, you know what, you know, who, who might have a, a good read on some of the facts here is Ted Bell. So, what am I missing? What, 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 else, what else do we know? What else is ascertainable about these bio labs? Okay. Um, it, it, it's, again, these are super dense subjects. So I want to start with a quick preference, preface to say that I'm going to summarize some information and there's deeper levels of all of this stuff. But like anything, um, I want to reference uh, Silence of the Lamb, read Marcus Aurelius, what is it in its nature? Because that's such a great starting point and it's a tangible thing for the listeners because everybody loves Silence of the Lambs. How can you not love that movie? So when we, when we think about what is it in itself, we first have to have a fundamental baseline. Human beings on this planet are conducting gain-of-function research, period. If you can't get your head around that concept, then we'll never make it to step two. So we all have to be clear on step one. There are- And let's, and let's be clear, just super clear. Gain of function is a euphemism for making viruses either more deadly or more contagious, correct? That's correct. More transmissible, more lethal is how they describe it. So there is our fundamental baseline. The second fundamental baseline that we should have after we have acceptance that, you know what, people are doing some, some really highly questionable research. Should human beings be in the business of messing around with viruses to make them more transmissible and more lethal? And the answer to that is, fuck no, of course not. And that's why there is a biologic weapons treaty. So here's our hardcore legal. This is not new. This is not fresh information. In 1925, 
and historians' radars will go up immediately. They'll be like, oh, yeah, after World War I, when we were mustard gassing other people and doing just treacherous shit, the entire world came together and logged on to this biological weapons treaty. And it said, no more. And it, the rules are very clear. You don't get to toy around with bioweapons. No storage, no development, no transportation. And that's the beginning, middle, and end of that. So how is it possible that we could have a lab in Wuhan and this lab that Vicky Newland was talking about in Ukraine? And the answer to that is there is a carve-out because there's always a carve-out. And the carve-out is phrased in the, in the document as research for purely peaceful purposes. And here's where um, we could go sidebar and talk about how people put words together to make something nefarious sound a lot cooler. So, oh, we're, we're not really going to do gain of function to make this more lethal and more transmissible. We're going to research this disease for purely peaceful purposes. And then the second piece of terminology that was changed is they became biosafety labs or BS labs kind of ironic that they, they use bs as the acronym yeah. Yeah. it's no longer a bioweapon it's biosafety and i want to direct people if i may to dr francis boyle of the university of illinois dr francis boyle has been on top of this bioweapon biosafety bs since the 80s and this type of Wuhan, Ukraine thing, it's not new. It's not different. It's just under-publicized. It's under-recognized. Francis Boyle, B-O-Y-L-E, University of Illinois, the Fighting Illini, they got bounced out of the tournament, but they still got high-quality professors over there who know a ton. So I'm going to borrow from the good Dr. Boyle and say that in the Ukraine, what happened is the U.S. defense industry got together with some folks like Vicki Newland in the Clinton State Department, and they decided that Ukraine was one of those locations on Earth that was ripe for these type of gain-of-function labs because they have a corrupt political class that the United States installed, and those folks will look the other way for a decent payoff, and then whatever the U.S. wants to do in those labs is whatever the U.S. wants to do in those labs. And the Ukrainians aren't asking questions about it. I could send you a link because I love to source all this stuff. The oh, send me links. I'll put them. I'll put all the okay. links in the uh, in the notes for sure. So there's an international acts series that came out in 2005. It was approximately the time where they started setting up the the biosafety labs in the Ukraine. There's a weapons proliferation agreement. So once again, the terminology a little inconsistent. Is this for people, excuse me, uh, peaceful purposes, or is this weapons proliferation? I can tell you that the document is titled Weapons Proliferation, and it's agreement between the DOD and the Ministry of Health in the Ukraine, and they set up these labs. So first off, the, the question of the existence of the labs is, is not a question. It's right here documented in 2005. However, if you scroll through the document, it doesn't say hey, we're going to build a BS4, or excuse me, a biosafety 4, which is the level at which gain of function occurs. So we're going to build a bunch of BS4 labs over in the Ukraine under this umbrella agreement. It uses all the, you know, the kind of doctored language. Oh, we're going to do anti-plague 
research in Odessa. In other words, they're going to try to reverse engineer a plague for the peaceful purpose of creating a vaccine, not you know because they want to make it more transmissible or more lethal. If that's what happens during the course of their attempt to find a vaccine, so be it. So that's kind of the, the underpinning of the labs in the Ukraine. So let me ask you a question. So there was a, a report on Fox News that said, actually, those labs are left over from Soviet era bioweapons programs in Russia and the U.S., was tasked, U- U.S. and I don't know if she, she said NATO also, but certainly the U.S. as part of it was tasked with de-weaponizing those labs or making them safer in some way. Now, I thought I was skeptical because I'm like, well, really, it's 2022. And when did that happen? And why it took 30 years? Like, why, why it took you this long to shut these down if it was that dangerous? But how do these labs come to be? Like, we're certainly, those labs exist it seems like we're in partnership with Ukraine and in, in having uh, control of what happens there. But does it have anything to do with Russia? Is Russia involved? Is it Russian? No, no, Russian? gosh, no. no okay. um, there may. So I want to be careful here because there's multiple labs that we're talking about. Um, right. There's uh, epidemiology and hygiene lab in one location. There's the plague lab in another location. There's a sanitary epidemiological station in Kiev. So there's multiple labs. And again, this is where it's dense. And I want to be careful because if you talk about this and you make a single misstatement, yeah, exactly. then all of a sudden, oh, conspiracy theory. You know? So it, yeah. it's important yeah. as you go through the yeah. document. And this is why the sourcing is so important. So is it possible that some of the physical structures were left over? Sure, that's entirely possible. But you can trace the agreements and the monies where they built these labs out. For example, the weapons proliferation agreement that I was talking about from 2005, that's the DOD pumping $15 million in, in, in 2005 dollars into a single lab to retrofit it so we could do this type of BS4 level stuff. Right. So whether the, the, the physical So that was bullshit. Yeah, that thing in Fox News was bullshit. That was the Pentagon statement she was reading, and that was what they wanted you to think. But that's just it, it, there may, as you said, there may be some structures, interest, right? 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 Yeah, maybe some structures. Right. Bullshit. Yeah, right, George right, yeah. Papadopoulos was a low-level Trump administrator who right. went to a wine bar in London. That is true. Right. He yes. never had any contact with any Russians. That's untrue. Right. You know, right. the lab structures well, may have been left over from the Cold War, but you know they're. I can point to you buildings in California that were left over from the San Francisco quake, but we've put significant right. funding into them since, and they have a different well, operation now. I'll, I'll say two things about this, which is really interesting, is that the disinformation is like, it, it's so sneaky because they yeah. won't tell the Trump lie. Like, hey, I had the biggest inauguration crowd ever, some lie that's easily disprovable. Right. They'll tell a lie that's got some truth. And then if you say, oh, that's bullshit, they'll say, no, you see, you're lying because there's this, this one, you know, not unimportant thing, but it, it is a fact that it's true. And the second thing is what you, what you alluded to, and I think this is so important, is someone like you or someone like me who talks about these topics, if I say one thing wrong on Twitter, like a million of these guys will jump down my throat, like, you moron, yep. you're the conspiracy. But the mainstream narrative, just they can just repeat it, no matter how flawed or dishonest it is. And it, the, the amount of rigor to sort of um, go against the narrative is 10x, 20x the amount of rigor to go with it. And I just think that it's just so funny that the critics, <laughs> the dissenters are so rigorous that not like the crackpots that you dismiss quickly when you're like, oh, this guy's just talking shit. 
but I mean like, you know, legitimate dissenters. And I read these sub stacks about what's going on with COVID. They are so rigorous because they know this truth also that if they right. say one little thing wrong, their whole thing will be dismissed and they'll be... It's so huge insight. This is why I love talking like general philosophy with you because people have a predetermined emotional goal, which is to not believe that the United States would be an entity that would participate in this type of gain of function. That's a huge hurdle to get over. If you've built your whole life thinking that we're the good guys and, and you know, or even another permutation below that, the Democrats are the goodest of the good guys, we would never, the Clintons and Obama would never be involved in installing gain-of-function research labs in Ukraine, Wuhan. We would never use NIH and DOD funds to operate. Yeah, we would, and we do. That's why I said, fake. number one, the fundamental thing is to acknowledge the truth of the, of the matter. And if you can't get past that one, that's where you're, you're, you're going to get those dissenters who pound at you the second you misstate a single thing. So before I'm going to interrupt you one more time before we go into step three, but it, the other thing that cracks me up is like you watch like a Jason Bourne movie. I love the Bourne movies, one of these action movies. And of course, like you learn early on that, he, you know, it's not really his fault. He's kind of been trained in this program. And what is the CIA trying to do with him? They're trying to kill him so that the information doesn't come out. You know, there's a lot of movies where you have to suspend disbelief. You might have to suspend disbelief that Jason Bourne could really take on like 30 people and get away in a crowded place. That takes some disbelief suspension. But the thing that takes no disbelief suspension from anybody is that the CIA would try to kill him to cover it up. Nobody thinks, oh, the CIA would never do that. There's (laughs) no way they would kill him. Everybody watching that movie takes it for granted. And the movie itself in the script takes it for granted. They don't have to explain who the CIA is. Everybody knows the CIA would kill one of its agents if it were going to be a scandal for the people above them, the people in charge and for the president, for the politicians. So we have these movies where this stuff happens. You know, uh, I watched The Fugitive, 1993. You know who the, you know who the villain was? Big Pharma. They were falsifying data. Nobody right. needed suspension of disbelief for that. You didn't have to say, oh, why would they do such a thing? They're, they're, they're engaged in trying to heal people. How could they do such a thing? You didn't need to suspend disbelief. It was a given that these companies do this kind of thing. And yet, for some God knows what reason, in real life, if you say that the U.S. and their intelligence agencies or their, the NIH or whatever agencies there would fund this gain of research in Wuhan, which is just a documented fact that they were yep. funding this stuff through Eco Alliance and DASAC, and they were doing this, people are like, oh, conspiracy theory. They would never do this. And I just do not understand why you can watch the movie and you have no problem. The, the there's not even disbelief that needs to be suspended. You believe it. Of course you believe that they would do that. Hume's insight. You want to believe it, so therefore you do. It's human but nature. why in the movie do you believe you it? You, in well, fiction, you can let it go. In fiction, you can be right. like, oh, it's because fiction. You're but in reality... You're being yeah. entertained right. for a couple of hours. It doesn't It doesn't rattle your core beliefs to, to know that the CIA would take out Bourne. It, it does rattle but, your core beliefs to know that Anthony Fauci is up to his fucking neck in funding gain-of-function research in Wuhan. I mean, those are completely different things. See, in my mind, it's like the same thing. It's like, yeah, our government's up to nefarious shit, you know, but I guess you're right. One's a fictional thing and they make the guy seem evil and jerky, whereas Fauci seems like a Brooklyn, your grandfather from Brooklyn, you know, and so he seems nice. And so they don't, they cast them a little bit. Yeah, I get it. I get it. But to me, it always blows my mind that nobody questions the fiction. And yet, as soon as it happens in reality, they act like, oh, how could, how could you think that? It's, it's, 
just a weird uh, thing. But anyway. one must one must put up barriers to keep oneself intact Liz. all right so go on sorry i'm interrupting you you were you're building it up so you said okay so they they did partner based on this 2005 agreement to do some research on bs level on, four on so the only thing okay. we can document is they have bs4 labs so that's it. What they do in that lab is anybody's guess. And this is where um, you can kind of go down the wrong road of speculating or, or making definitive statements. I can't definitively say that there was gain of function research happening in Ukraine in these labs because I don't know that. It, it's a logical deduction. You know, you could you could reach that conclusion based on, you know, what you can put together from the evidence. And um, Ukraine is is just a cesspool of corruption. It would be exactly the place if you, if your intent was to do gain of function, and that's kind of um, let me pause there. Sorry, that was a little incoherent. But one of the things that I I enjoy doing is taking the devil's advocate position. Let's say that I'm not some you know citizen documentarian, and rather I'm somebody who has vested financial interests in this research. Where would I put it on Earth? What type of environment would I look for? I would look for the Ukraine. I mean, it, it is a fertile ground for it. Um, and the gain of function labs, that's just one of the scams that is likely being run through the Ukraine. There were, I don't know how widely known stuff like this is, but from 2014 to 2016, there was a multi-billion dollar slush fund run through the Ukraine under the name of a, a loan guarantee program. And once again, these are things you can easily, I'll send you the links for it. The U.S. signed a loan guarantee program that, in summary, the Congress would send a billion dollars through the IMF. I know you're a huge fan of these type of monetary sure. agencies. Sure. So the IMF was the point person. So therefore, Congress can't get in trouble if the funds get misappropriated. There's their insulation mm. layer. So... The billion dollars flows to the IMF. The IMF intakes loan applications from Ukrainians and then flows U.S. money to them. You want to take a guess what happened? Defaults. Across the board, the loans defaulted, the IMF backed them, and half of that money flowed back into the United States because the Ukrainians that were getting the loans and then defaulting were actually in business with people like Mitt Romney, Nancy Pelosi, and... So the money, it was just a neat way for Congress to take a billion dollars in U.S. taxpayer money and launder it to themselves through this, you know, loan program. And that's the type of stuff that's been happening in the Ukraine ever since it became a quasi-independent state. So, you know, when we think about the Hunter Biden, Barisma, that's that's small potatoes. Him getting a couple million dollars to sit on a board of an energy company, that's not really, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't have my eyes on the prize if I was focusing on Hunter Biden and Burisma, the labs, the loan guarantee program. That's the core of the hardcore corruption in Ukraine. And a large part of me thinks that's why we're in uh, such a media push for everything Ukraine. You would never see this around a nation that didn't have this type of value to the elites in the West. There's a lot of folks across the UK, across the EU, and the US that are making bank off of the Ukraine. So there's a lot of money flowing to powerful people through this region. Putin invades, 
threatens to disrupt this flow and we don't even That's know right. what sort of agreements are there. And so just the face value of everyone, you know, no, regular people are like, yeah, I feel terrible for the people who are being harmed by, you know, an invasion and, and killed. But what interest does the U.S. have as a country for Ukraine, you know, versus Yemen versus all these other places that horrible things are going on? And there's a reason that they can't say why we're sort of invested in Ukraine. Okay, well, I, I want to pivot to something because a couple, a couple of themes in this kind of connect, right? So one is the New York Times the other day, I don't want to say they confirmed the Hunter Biden laptop story because uh, right. that was confirmed already. They just admitted that it was true is what I would say. They admitted the truth of the Hunter Biden laptop story. And at first I was like, okay, they just did this because now the election's long behind us. Enough time has gone by that it's safe for them to just tell the truth now about this. But I'm like, why would they do this, right? Like, why would the New York Times bother to even opine on this, given that it's adverse to their interests and the whole worldview and their, what their readers want? To hear that that story was not Russian disinformation, it was, I mean, it's kind of inopportune to say, wow, the thing you said and all these intelligence people said was Russian disinformation was actually true. Maybe we shouldn't believe right now in the middle of this war, what they are saying is Russian disinformation. So... I, when I read a New York Times article or one of the articles of the regime, you know, anything that's put out by the PR arm of the regime, which I consider the legacy media, I think, why am I reading this now? What do they want me to think? So I think, what is coming up? What is coming down the pike that they wanted to get out ahead of? I, I mean, maybe it's nothing. Maybe they just felt like it was enough time went by and they wanted to be on the right side of history. Maybe. <laughs> that, that doesn't seem sufficient to me for them to come out with this. What is the deal with the Hunter Biden laptop? I talked, I think, sufficiently last week about the implications in terms of censorship and how fucked up that was. But what about the actual contents of it? What do you know about that? Oh, well, the contents of the laptop are, are pretty straightforward. The The most incriminating as far as the, the current administration is, is it showed how that Joe Biden, his brother James Biden, and the son Hunter Biden put together deals with foreign entities where they essentially sell influence. And in exchange for that influence, uh, they take an upfront payment and then they take an equity stake in a corporation. In the laptop scenario, it was a Chinese oil corporation and the individual that they were dealing with was later rung up on corruption charges for a different corrupt thing that he was doing. So there's, there's never been any doubt about what they were attempting to do. They were trying to allow a Chinese oil tycoon to buy influence from the Bidens in the hopes that in the future that would pay dividends for the Chinese oil person. And the deal, my understanding is the deal that they were talking about in the emails was never actually finalized. But um, this is where it... You know, I don't want to come across as condescending, but there's a lot of political illiteracy out there. Like the people who think that, you know, oh, Uncle Joe is just this, you know, good natured guy from Delaware. No, Joe Biden is a career politician who's completely corrupt, who's been doing these types of kickback deals for as, as long as I've been alive. You know, the guy, he's been in Congress my entire life, essentially. So, you know, it, it doesn't matter whether it was his brother James getting lucrative real estate development deals that even though he had no basis in real estate in Iraq, Iran, he had Middle Eastern real estate things, the Ukrainian board seats for Hunter, 
Hunter's business partner is a gentleman by the name of Devin Archer. And I don't want to get too far afield here, but just to kind of start to build the house of how corrupt the Biden family is, Devin Archer and their company was ripping off Indian tribes. <laughs> it was their big scam. Archer got rung up for that in federal court. So he was he was indicted on it. Usually people like him, those Yale kids, those Ivy League kids don't go down. But I believe Devin Archer it's ended so up egregious. Yeah, it's it so is. Egregious it was, that this they, one was so bad. Them. They ripped off the Indian tribes so badly that somebody had to take a fall and Archer went down. But, you know, these are, uh, they're very, if I seem kind of dismissive, it's it's classic corruption and every politician does it. it it's very similar to insider trading. They all insider trade. They all take kickbacks. They all sell their influence. And it's it's not a partisan thing. It has nothing to do with, with Democrat, Republican, it's anybody who's a, a career politician. This is how they get so rich off of those, you know, $100,000, $200,000 a year jobs. And, you know, so to kind of refocus back to the laptop itself. So the laptop contained uh details the express details of that chinese deal including 10 percent equity for the big guy the big guy is joe biden so those are what we commonly refer to as FARA or foreign agents registration act violations everything about that is illegal there's they're not supposed to be doing that but it's kind of wink wink nod nod or at least it was right up until paul manafort and you know that was another thing about the whole Russiagate. It was it was very enlightening to see the the prosecu prosecutorial discretion of what charges got filed. Roger Stone was busted for lying to Congress. When's the last time you saw somebody get right. popped James for lying Clumber, to Congress? Right. They, could have, they could put so many people away for that, and, and they chose to throw any charge that could possibly stick at the Trump team, even though they were scumbags, right? Like Manafort oh, was doing this yeah. scummy dealing, but those kind of people had long been like, oh yeah, we do this scummy dealing because we're friends with powerful people and this is just what we do. And yeah, then suddenly yeah. he actually selectively got busted for it, which he should have gotten busted for his whatever illegal stuff he's doing, but nobody else was getting busted for it. They decided to throw the book at him is what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Paul Manafort and Victoria Newland are the same person, essentially. For all intents and purposes, everything that Paul Manafort does, Vicky Newland has done. It's that's who they are. Those are the, the swamp creatures, if you will, the K Street scumbags, for lack of a better term. So to, again, the second time, let me try and steer back into the laptop. So the laptop was, was clear and convincing evidence of Biden corruption. So that's why it, it had to be suppressed as far as those people. And um, I've heard you phrase it this way, and I love the phrasing is, it's not about what's true or not. It's about who it helps or who it hurts. And on the eve of the election, having clear and convincing evidence for the world to look at that Joe Biden sells influence and gets his family paid around the world, it's a bad look. You know, would it have changed the election? Probably not. But for, for a whole host of other reasons, that's an entirely separate show. But it just goes to show you the, the extent that the Praetorian Guard, you know, will go to those those enterprises that need the system to stay in place, the New York Times of the world, the big techs. And that's why the New York Post was sent to the corner. You know, you can't in polite company, we don't talk about Joe Biden's corruption. You would forget that. 
Yeah, it's. I mean, it's so screwed up because you're right. We don't know whether it would have changed the election. I think a lot of people were, that were anti-Trump were so anti-Trump. Yeah. You know, it, it wouldn't matter. But that's for the electorate to decide. You know, I mean, it's really it's really fucked to, in a democracy to put your thumb on the scale as a supposed jur- supposedly journalistic outlet. And, you know, the New York Times confirmed that it was true. But I don't you don't see any mea culpas from all the outlets wow. that suppressed it or Twitter. And they're trying to fight disinformation and they suppressed good information. And it's like that. I don't know. There's just no accounting for it at all. No, it's a sword. It's a, it's a wonderful technique. Again, I, I really don't get bent about it. I, I have a kind of a, an acceptance, a calmness about the whole thing. It's, it's brilliant when you think about it because the media gets to use misinformation as a sword and a shield. You know, they can use it to attack stories they don't like. They can use it to defend stories that they don't want told. It's it's a really versatile thing to have in, in your arsenal. To just, oh, it's Russian dif- disinformation. Um, tie it all back together in, uh, gosh, probably 2014, 2015, Vicky Newland got caught on a hot mic saying, fuck the oh, EU. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And do you know what they called it? Russian spies, Russian spy. Yeah. It wasn't about whether Vicky Newland was saying fuck the EU. It was about, ooh, it was, you can't talk about that because that's the product of Russian spycraft. It was a Russian wiretap that got it. it was it really a Russian, Russian wiretap that caught Vicky? Probably not, but right. there it is. Now it's a shield. Right. You know, yeah. if I start talking about kid pop, oh, now it's a sword. That guy's disinformation. You're listening mm-hmm. to disinformation. So, yeah. What a versatile weapon to have at your disposal when you want to control dissent. Do you have any inkling of why the New York Times would finally admit that, though? Because I'm still like, why am I finding this out? Like, is there something else that's going to come out that they're going to have been in much better standing with the public if they had said something first? I do not. I do not. But I think that as a good basic rule to have, it's going to be more than one reason. You know, it, it, it's not going to be as simple as a, a light switch. Oh, you know, here's why we have to do it now. Number one, it helps restore their credibility, if you will. I don't think it does, but in a right. in a larger sense, they can now say, oh, you know, we didn't suppress the Hunter Biden laptop story. We just needed to corroborate it. It took us until the time where it was most ineffective, you know, where right. the reporting would have the least impact, but we've got it corroborated now. So it gives the New York Times a little feather of credibility. Also, if you want to start putting your toe in the speculation pool, has Biden gone all in on a military response to the Ukrainian conflict? No, he has not. So maybe we need to turn up the heat on Hunter to to influence right, Joe. Right. So, yeah. but you know, that's a dangerous pool to start putting your foot in. Cause I don't right. know. No, the answer. I, I don't know the answer. I, and, and it might be as simple as what you said, like, okay, it's enough safe distance from the election. We can restore credibility with some sector of the public that. Right. Cause they're going to need it coming up for the midterms. If, you right. Know, you so allow, you know, the, the, everyone to have their, their web, you know, their response to the New York times, they suppressed the Hunter Biden. No, we didn't. No, we didn't. And that's why we can now talk about the midterms and you should have confidence in what we're saying. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be almost like you set a tweet for a year and a half. Let's okay. We have the article filed in December of 2020 and we'll just set a a post and we'll set the date to uh, March of 2022. It'll be safe by then to come out. Um, Oh yeah, exactly. A timed tweet. (laughs) I mean, it's like, they're just like, you know, just, it's a timed tweet. It's a timed post. Like, okay. 
fine. Um, all right. I felt that's really enlightening, the stuff you went over. I think it's great going into the old filings. We're going to put links in the notes to this podcast. So uh, be able to uh, corroborate them for yourself. Ted Bell and me, we're just two dudes. We make mistakes. We're human. So decide if what we say <laughs> make, makes sense. We try to be transparent and put the links in and, and you can think about it for yourself. I don't know if you have another five minutes. I do. Um, I've got, I've got, I noticed there was one more thing on the little one sheet that you sent over. And uh, it's kind of a good segue to get into that. Speaking of making mistakes, um, I, I am certainly a flawed human. And I have had my difficulties over the years of uh, around 2005, 2006 is what people would commonly refer to as rock bottom. So, I mean, I'm not proud of it. I don't really talk about it extensively, but, you know, there were some serious substance abuse problems in, in my life. And in the time that I was getting all of that fixed, I found yahoo.com fantasy sports and I went all in. It became like the substitute. It's, it's um, for people who've gone through addiction and stuff, it's not entirely uh, unusual to replace the addiction at first with something else. So how I kind of got to be friendly with fantasy sports people, and I'm so sorry to have to mention his name and, and associate him with me, but Mr. Andy Barons. So Barons, Funston, and Pianowski were the three dudes who were primarily writing for Yahoo at that point. And while I was, you know, rehabbing, one of the things I did was just read fantasy articles and play fantasy sports. You know, it was it was a way to to focus energy. And back then, the industry wasn't so massive that I just started commenting on the articles. And before too long, Andy was like, hey, man, you know, you comment a lot. Did you want to play in a league together? And it was Andy Barron's is really the, the answer to the question, how did you get to be friendly with sports people? So Barron's was the one who let me ride his coattails into a couple of leagues because I had met him on those chat boards. And Andy introduced me to my long lost brother, it turns out, Scott Pianowski. And Scott and I got really close for a number of years and he let me ride his coattails into so many cool things. He, he put me in mock drafts that were in magazines. He was the one who got me into DVR's Pentathlon. That was a Scott recommendation. And the reason that I think the, the relationship worked was because I truly did not want anything from those guys. I wasn't trying to be a fantasy industry person. I wasn't trying to break into the business. And I spent some time with Barons in Vegas once, and I got to see like the punishment that you guys take sometimes. Like I didn't really know who they were, but every third person was, was in Andy's face. Just, oh, you, how can I get a better FSW, whatever the thing is? How can I win more awards? Did you see my article? And, you know, I, I have a background in the music business and in the music biz, we call them punishers. Bro, can you get me on your tour? Bro, I need a, just a little bit more merch space. And it's just, oh, all you want to do is hang out you know, and yeah. talk about fantasy sports or, or have a drink or something. And these, the punishers just won't leave you alone. So it was really, I had way more free time than a normal person would have because of some of the challenges in my life. So I was commenting, reading on their stuff. They enjoyed me enough to get me into leagues and they found out, oh, 
you know, this is not a punisher. This is just an enthusiast and he can play a little bit. So he's always good with his dues and he can play a little bit. So let's keep him around. And that's, that's the real story. Yeah. Good story. And yeah, Andy Barron's is responsible for this. I now, he was, now Andy I know. was no the one who turned me on to through Dalton, uh, through yeah. Dalton. He was like, yeah. you know who you really got to listen to Tommy is you've got to check out Dalton and this guy, Chris Liss. And I had no idea at that point that we were such kindred spirits. We, we come from a lot of similar thinking. So interesting. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't realize it was Barron's. Barron's is the guy. Yeah, and he's, I'm you so know, sorry, Andy. Andy, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, no, he's in big trouble now. He's probably going to get fired for this. I but know. also Barron's is more famous than I am. So he had to deal with more punishers. I once in a while dealt with some people like that and I was usually polite but I was mostly getting my drink on with the, with the guys. I, I pretty much, and we had, the thing about Rotowire that was so great is we had like Peter and Shannon and Ken going to deal with all the business stuff. And I would just like do the draft and then get drunk with a bunch of people. So for me, it was, it was good. But yeah, I, I understand yeah. Andy Barron's was in the, his FSWA role and all that stuff. So he yeah, had to, it was had to deal brutal with watching yeah. these people. Uh, so I'm not going to name names, but I yeah. did recognize some of them. I was like, Jesus, leave him alone, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I uh, shout out to a couple of people real quick names that you'll recognize. I got to play in a league with Thorn, who I oh, think Thorbert. is one of, the, yeah. one of the coolest people I've Thorn ever the man. met in my life. Played in a league with your your now former partner, Jeff Erickson, who if, if Andy isn't the kindest guy in fantasy sports, yeah. Jeff is. You know, and it, it's just, it's been such a great pleasure hanging around all those guys. And like I said, if it wasn't for Andy, I wouldn't have met Scott. And if it wasn't for Scott, there wouldn't be a Ted Bell. It's it's all Andy and Scott, and they've yeah. been so, so generous. Pianowski. It's his, it's Pianowski his is the one who amplified it, without okay. a doubt. And I love Scott like a brother, always will. Um, definitely growing a little bit apart in the last couple of years, but I'm sure our paths will cross again. He's he's such a great guy. I got nothing but good things to say about Scott, Andy, and um, Brandon as well. I'm, I'm, I Actually, let me toot my own horn. I'm actually now the commissioner of the league that that Andy invited me to way back yeah. in the day, and Brandon's in it. There's other there's people like major league scouts and stuff in it. It's a really cool baseball league. I don't have any thoughts to share on fantasy baseball this year. I'll leave that to the fantasy experts. Okay, I was going to ask you if you had any yeah, futures no, NFL. I got nothing on that. TB12, I, oh, TB12. Super Bowl? Uh, dude, I'm still pissed that none of my TB12 MVP positions cashed. That was the worst beat of the entire year. Rogers, he wasn't, he wasn't quite militant enough about it. You know, I know just, if he had just gone all in, maybe you would have, you got, you would have got it. I needed one Fauci tweet from him to, yeah, something, to, yeah. to get my tickets cashed. He didn't, he didn't take it. Rogers didn't take the bait and become some sort of cultural. He didn't want to be a cultural symbol of anything. He just said, look, this is my medical choice. I was, which I kept, obviously I respect, but he, he didn't take the bait. And so you cost you money. I did. I kept betting into the pariah angle and God, I, I left it. I left with empty yeah. pockets. It was embarrassing. Yeah. Well, anyway, I really appreciate you coming on, Ted, man. Great stuff and unique stuff. Think, you know, you can get a lot of fantasy pundits on and, and different people, but very few people bring to the table what you do. And, and I appreciate it. And I encourage people to check out the Arch Independent podcast and follow you on Twitter. I don't know what your latest handle is. So don't worry about it. It's... You don't care. You just <laughs> no. don't care. You don't care. It's fine. Okay. Follow or not. Um, and send me those links and I will put the links in. Uh, in All right, I will. I'll, because that's, that's almost business for me. I should back up the citations for the stuff that I was talking about. So I'll, I'll shoot those over to you later today. Thanks for having me on, man. It was a great chat.